Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You- hey everyone. It's me, TV. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Recording by Tommy Howell. Astounding Story 6, June 1930. Murder Madness by Murray Leinster, Chapter 10. For four hours after sunrise, Bell worked desperately. With the few and inadequate tools in the plane, he took apart the oiling system of the motor. It was in duplicate, of course, like all modern air engines, and there were three magnetos and double spark plugs. Bell drained the crankcase beneath a sun that grew more and more hot and blistering, catching the oil in a gasoline can that he was able to empty into the main tanks. He washed out innumerable small oil pipes with gasoline and flushed out the crankcase itself, and had at the end of his working as many small scraps of metal as would half fill a thimble. He showed them to Paula. And the stars in their courses fought against Cicera, he quoted dryly. Any one of these caught in just the right place would have let us down into the jungle last night. She smiled up at him. But they didn't. No, God loves the Irish, said Bell. What's that thing? Paula was fishing, sitting on a fallen tree in the cloud of smoke from a smudge fire Bell had built for her. She was wearing the oily flying suit he had found in the shed with the plane, and had torn strips from her discarded dress to make a fishing line. The hook was made out of the stiff wire handle of one of the extra gasoline tents. Hook and leader in one, Bell had observed when he made it. He was pointing to a flat-bodied fish with incredible jaws that lay on the grass, emitting strange sounds even in the air. It flapped about madly. Its jaws closed upon a stick nearly half an inch thick and cut it through. It is a paranya, said Paula, the same fish that bit your hand. It can bite through a copper wire fastened to a hook, but this hook is so long. Pleasant, said Bell. Something large and red passed before his eyes. He struck at it instinctively. Don't! said Paula sharply. Why? It's a merabundi wasp, she told him. And it's sting. Children have died of it. A strong man will be ill for days from one single sting. Still more pleasant, said Bell. The jungle is a charming place, isn't it? He wiped the sweat off his face. Any more little pets about? She looked about seriously. There! She pointed to a sapling not far distant. The Palo Santo yonder has a hollow trunk, 
and in it there are usually ants, which are called fire ants. They bite horribly. It feels like a drop of molten metal on your flesh, and it festers afterwards. And there is a fly, the barony fly, which lays its eggs in living flesh. The maggot eats its way within. I do not know much about the jungle, but my father has had a fazenda in Mato Grosso, and I was there as a child. The camaradas told me much about the jungle then. Bell winced and sat down beside her. She had Ribiera's pearl-handled automatic within easy reach. She saw him looking at it. I do not think there is any danger, she said, with a not very convincing smile. But there are kururus, water snakes. They grow very large. And I asked you to fish, said Bell. Stop it. She hauled the line ashore, with a flapping thing on the end of it. Bell took the fish off and regarded her catch moodily. I'd been thinking, he said moodily, that Riviera suspects we're dead. I'd been envisioning ourselves as marooned, yes, but relatively safe, as long as we were thought to be dead. And I'd thought if we lived a sort of castaway existence for a few weeks we'd be forgotten and would have a faint chance of getting out to civilization without being noticed. But this... I will stay, she said steadily. I will stay anywhere or go anywhere with you. Bell's hand closed on her shoulder. I believe it, he said heavily, and if you noticed, I'd been thinking of letting down the trade. I'd been thinking of not trying to fight the master any longer but only of getting you to safety. In a sense, I was thinking of treason to my job and my government. I suspect, he smiled rather queerly, I suspect we love each other rather much, Paula. I'd never have dreamed for anyone else. Go over to the plane and don't fish any more. I'll rustle the food for both of us. She stood up obediently, smiling at him. But kill that piranha before you try to handle it she advised seriously. Bell battered the savage thing until it ceased to move. He picked it up then and sniffed the air. Paula had been in a cloud of acrid smoke. She could not have detected the taint in the air he discovered. He went curiously, saw a broken branch overhead, and then saw something on the ground. He came back to the plane presently, looking rather sick. Give me one of the machetes, Paula, he said quietly. We brought them, I think. What is the matter? He took the wide-bladed woods knife. A man, he said, nauseated. He either fell or was thrown from somewhere high above, from a plane. He was United States Secret Service. There's a badge in his clothes. Don't come. He went heavily over to the spot beyond the smudge fire. He worked there for half an hour. When he came back, there were earth stains on his hands and clothing, and he carried a very small brown package in his hand. He had a report ready to send off, said Bell grimly. I read it. It's in code, of course. But in the trade... He set to work savagely on the engine, reassembling it. 
As he worked, he talked in savage, jerky sentences. The serviceman at Asuncion, one of the seven who vanished. He learned more than we have. He was caught, poisoned, of course, and pretended to surrender. Told a great deal that he shouldn't, in order to convince the master's deputy. The key men in nearly every republic in South America are in the master's power. Paraguay belongs to him, body and soul. Bolivia is absolutely his. Every man of the official class from the president down knows that he has two weeks or less of sanity if the master's deputy shuts down on him, and he knows that at the crook of the deputy's finger he'll be assassinated before then. If they run away, they go murder-mad. If they stay, they have to obey him. It's hellish. He stopped talking to make a fine adjustment. He went on somberly. Chile's not so bad off, but the deputy has slaves nearly everywhere. Ecuador, well, the president and half of Congress have been poisoned. The man I found was trying to get a sample of the poison for analysis. He'd learned it was unstable, wouldn't keep. The master has to send fresh supplies constantly all over the continent. That accounts for the deputies remaining loyal. If the master had reason to suspect them, he had only to stop their supply. They couldn't stock up on the deadly stuff for their own use. They couldn't stock up on the deadly stuff for their own use. So they're as abjectly subject to the master as their slaves are to them. No new slaves are able to be made in Paraguay or Bolivia except when necessary. It's believed that in six months the other republics will have every influential man subjected. Every army officer, every judge, every politician, every outstanding rich man, and then, overnight, South America will become an empire with that devil of a master as its overlord. He lifted one of the oil pumps in place and painstakingly tightened the bolts that held it. Picture it, he said grimly, beasts as viceroys, already taking their pleasure, Caligulas, Neros on viceregal thrones all over the continent, and every man who shows promise or shows signs of honor or courage or decency, either killed or sent mad or... Paula was watching his face closely. I think, she said soberly, that there is something worse. Bell was silent for an instant. For me, he said bitterly, it is. Before the master dares to make his coup public, he must be sure that there will be no foreign interference. So he must establish a deputy in Washington. A relatively few chosen men, completely enslaved, could hold back our government from any action. Leaders in Congress and members of the cabinet working in defense of the master because his defeat would mean their madness. He would demand no treason of them at first. He would require simply that he should not be interfered with. But his plans include the appointment of deputies in the United States later on. I don't think he can subdue America. I don't think so. But he could, and I think he would, send whole cities mad. And if you think of that... He was silent, working... A long, long time later he swung on the propeller. The motor caught. He throttled it down and watched it grimly. The motor warmed up to normal and stayed there. It will run, he said coldly. Those two plugs in the crankcase may come out at any time. I've tightened them a little. They'd worked loose from the vibration, but, well, that serviceman was heading for Asuncion. He'd been found out. They probably shot him down in mid-air after he'd gotten away. 
His plane may be crashed anywhere in the jungle within a mile or so, and I have two bearings on the fazenda where Ribeiro went now. One from Asuncion, through here, and one from Rio. I want to go back there tonight and dump burning gasoline on the buildings, to do enough damage to disorganize things a little. Then I'm going to try to make it to a seaport. We can stow away, perhaps. He shut off the motor. We'll start at dusk. There'll be lights there. This report says it's nearly a city of slaves. We want the darkness for our getaway. Paula looked at the sky. We have three hours, she said quietly. Let us cook and eat. You must keep up your strength, Charles. She said it in all seriousness, with the air of one who has entire confidence and is merely solicitous. And Bell, who knew of at least three excellent reasons why neither of them should survive until dawn. Bell looked at her queerly, and then grinned, and then took her in his arms and kissed her. She seemed to like it. And they lunched quite happily on piranha and pacu, which is smaller, and drank water, and for dessert had more piranha. The long afternoon wore away slowly. It was hot and grew blistering. Insects came in swarms and tormented them until Bell built a second and larger smudge fire. But they fastened upon his flesh when he went out of its smoke for more firewood. They talked as well as they could for smoke, and looked at each other as well as they could for smarting eyes. It was not at all the conventional idea of romantic conversation, but it was probably a good deal more honest than most, because they both knew quite well that their chance of life was small. A plane whose motor was precariously patched, flying over a jungle, without hope of a safe landing if that patched-up motor died, was bad enough. But with the three nearest nations subservient to the master, whose deputy Ribeiro was, and all those nations hunting them as soon as they were known to be yet alive. "'Would it not be wise, Charles?' asked Paula wistfully. "'Just for us to try to escape ourselves and not try?' "'Wise, perhaps,' admitted Bell. "'But I've got to strike a blow while I can.' He was staring somberly at the little plain, fast upon a mud bank with the tall green jungle all about. The deputies and all their slaves have their lives hanging by a thread. The thread of a constant supply of the antidote to the poison that's administered with the antidote. The deputies, Riviera, for instance, don't realize that, else they wouldn't dare do the things they do. But let them realize that the thread can be broken and what their slaves would do to them before they all went mad. You see? Let them learn that a blow has been struck at the center of all the ghastly thing, and they'll be frightened. They'll be close to mutiny through sheer panic. And there may be slip-ups. It was vague, perhaps, but it was true. The subjection of the poisoned men and women was due not only to terror of what would happen if they disobeyed the deputies, but to a belief that that thing would not happen if they did obey. If Bell could do enough damage to the fazenda of the master to shake the second belief, he would have shaken the whole conspiracy, and a conspiracy that is not a complete success is an utter failure. It was close to sunset when they heard a droning noise in the distance. Bell went swiftly to the cockpit of the plane and searched the sky. Don't see it, he said grimly, and it probably doesn't see us. We're all right, I suppose. 
But he was uneasy. The droning sound grew to a maximum and slowly died away again. It diminished to a distant muttering. What say, said Bell suddenly, we get aloft now. We'll follow that damn thing home. It's going from Asuncion to that place we want to find. This is on that route. Whoever's in it won't be looking behind, and it's close to darkness. Paula stood up. I am ready, Charles. Bell swung out on the floats and tugged at the prop. The motor caught and roared steadily. While it was warming up, he stripped off the rest of his shirt and tore it into wide strips and tied the rags in the handles of the gasoline tins in the two cockpits. For our bombs, he explained, smiling faintly. You'll want to wear your shoot pack, Paula. You know how to work it? And we'll divide the guns and what shells we have and stick them in the flying suit pockets. He made her show him a dozen times that she knew how to pull out the ring that would cause the parachute to open. She climbed into the front cockpit and smiled down at him. He throttled down the motor to its lowest speed and shoved off from the mud bank. Clambering up while the plane moved slowly over the water under the gentle pull of the slow-moving propeller, he bent over and kissed her. For luck, he said in her ear. The next instant he settled down at the controls, glanced a last time at the instruments, and gave the motor the gun. The plane lifted soggily but steadily and swept upstream toward the rolling water of the Radal, which tumbled furiously about an obstacle half of stones and shallows, and half of cod and rotting tree trunks. It rose steadily until the trees dropped away on either side and the jungle spread out on every hand. It rose to a thousand feet and went roaring through the air to northward, while Bell strained his eyes for the plane on ahead. It was ten minutes or more before he sighted it, winging its way steadily in the misty distance above the jungle. Bell settled down to follow. The engine roared valorously. For half an hour, Bell watched it anxiously, but it remained cool and had always ample power. Paula's head showed above the cockpit combing. Mostly, she looked confidently ahead, but once or twice she turned about to smile at him. The sun seemed high when they rose from the water, but as it neared the horizon, its rate of descent seemed to increase. They had been in the air for no more than three-quarters of an hour when it was twice its own disk above the far distant hills. Almost immediately it seemed it had halved that distance, and then the lower limb of the blaring circle was sharply cut off by the hill crests, and the sun sank wearily to rest behind the edge of the world. It seemed as if a swift, chill breeze blew over the jungle in warning of the night. The trees became dark, a shadowy dusk filled the air, even up to where the plane flew thunderously on, and then, quite abruptly, stars were shining, and it was night. Bell remembered suddenly and switched on the radio as an experiment. The harsh, discordant dashes sounded in his ears through the roaring of the motor. A beam of short waves was being sent out from his destination. While he was on the direct path, the monotonous signals could be heard. When they weakened or died, he would have left the way. But they continued, discordant and harsh and monotonous, while the last faint trace of the afterglow died away and night was complete, and a roof of many stars glittered overhead, and the jungle lay dark and deadly below him. For nearly half an hour more he kept on. 
Twice he switched on the instrument board light to glance at the motor temperature. The first time it appeared a little high. The second time it was normal again. But there was little use in watching instruments. If the motor failed, there was no landing field to make for. A sudden faint glow sprang into being many miles ahead. The pinkish glare of many, many lights turned on suddenly. As the plane thundered on, the glow grew brighter. An illuminated field for the convenience of messengers who carried the poison for the master to all of the nations which were to be subjected. The glow went out as Bell was just able to distinguish long rows of twinkling bulbs, and he saw the harsher, fiercer glow of floodlights. He reached forward and touched Paula's shoulder. Conversation was impossible over the motor's roar. Her hand reached up and pressed his. Then he saw other lights, bright lights as from houses, arc lights as from storage warehouses or something of the sort, a long, long row of lighted windows, which might be dormitories or perhaps sheds in which the master's enslaved secretaries kept the record of his victims. The earth flung back the roaring of the little plane's motor. Bell had but little time to act before other planes would dart upward to seek him out. He dived, and the wingtip landing lights went on, sending fierce glares downward. Twin disks of light appeared upon the earth, sheds, houses, a long row of shacks as if for laborers, a drying field on which were spread out plants with their leaves turning brown. A wall about it. The damn stuff, said Bell grimly. He swept on. Jungle. Only jungle. He banked steeply as lights flicked on and off below, and as once the wingtip lights showed men running frantically two hundred feet below. Then a stream of fire shot earthward, and Bell held up his hand and arm into the blast of the slipstream. It blew out the blaze that had licked at his flesh. He stared down. The gas can had left a trailing stream of fluid behind as it went spinning down to earth. All of that stream of inflammable stuff was aflame. The can itself struck earth and seemed to explode, and the trailing mass of fire was borne onward by the wind and lay across a row of thatch-roofed buildings. An incredible sheet of fire spread out. The stuff in the drying yard was burning. Bell laughed shortly and flung over another of his flaming bombs, and another, and the fourth. He climbed for the skies then as the rectangles of light showed below and planes were thrust out of their lighted hangars. Four huge conflagrations were begun. One was close by a monster-rounded tank, and Bell watched with glistening eyes as it crept closer. Suddenly, it seemed suddenly, but it must have been minutes later, flame rushed up the sides of that tank. There was a sudden hollow booming, and fire was flung broadcast in a blazing, pouring flood. They're fuel tanks, said Bell, his eyes gleaming in the ruddy light from below. He shut off his landing lights and went upward steeply. I've played hell with them now. A thousand feet up, two thousand, two thousand five hundred, and suddenly Bell felt cold all over. The instrument board, the motor was hot, hot, burning. He shut it off before it could burst into flames, but he heard the squealing of tortured, unlubricated metal grinding to a stop. He leveled out. It was strangely, terribly silent in the high darkness, despite the roaring of wind about the gliding plane. The absence of the motor roar was the thing that made it horrible. 
Paula,' said Bell harshly. "'One of those plugs came out, I guess. "'The motor's ruined. Dead. "'The ship's going to crash. "'Ready with your parachute?' "'It was dark up there, "'save for the glare of fires "'upon the undersurface of the wings. "'But he saw her hand, "'encarmined by that glare, "'upon the combing of the cockpit. "'A moment later her face.' She turned, light dazzled, to smile back at him. All right, Charles. Her voice quavered a little, but was very brave. I'm ready. You're coming, too? I'm coming, said Bell grimly. Below them was the city of the Master, set blazing by their doing. If their chutes were seen descending, and if they were not. Count ten, said Bell hoarsely, and pull out the ring. I'll be right after you. He saw the slim little black-clad figure drop, plummet-like, and prayed in an agony of fear. Then a sudden booming thing hit it from sight. Thick clouds of smoke lay over the lights and fires below. Bell stepped over the side and went hurtling down toward the earth in his turn. To be continued. End of Section 7 Murder Madness Chapter 10 by Murray Leinster. To the Cthulhu Mythos, you can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, now to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh submitting stuff actually you don't have to be a patron to submit anything that's how dave got on the show and that's how you can get on the show too it's the people's guide to the cthulhu mythos rate review subscribe tell your friends thank you for listening back to the show